0: Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. It's a podcast from Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics.
1: And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics.
0: I want to welcome you to a special edition of our podcast today and let you know that you can also view this on video at biola.edu thinkbiblically. So join us now for our conversation with Dr. Eric Thomas.
1: Does the Bible say anything about sex and gender? Are there differences between men and women? Well, given so much conversation about sexuality today and issues of gender in the LGBTQ conversation, it's more important than ever that we think carefully about this but also think biblically. I'm here with my co-host, Scott Ray, from Talbot School of Theology. We have a guest today, Eric Tannis, a Bible teacher, beloved professor, former football player, who's willing to talk about these issues that a lot of people want to avoid. So we're really grateful that you would come on and talk with us about this. You're in the classroom with students. I see you bringing students when you go out and speak. You have a lot of conversations with young people today about this. What are some of the questions you're hearing them ask about issues of gender and as it's tied to scripture?
2: Well, what's fascinating about that question is how much the questions have changed since I started Mm. teaching almost 25 years ago. There used to be questions way further down the road of what does it look like to take leadership in a marriage or in the church? now the very existence of objective categories of male and female Mm -hmm. are up for grabs and being questioned. And so Mm -hmm. the conversation has moved so much further back to foundational issues of the sheer existence of a created intended difference between male and female, or whether that's just sociologically or culturally determined or merely biologically determined, which, by the way, can be altered. So the questions more and more keep going back to, Whether or not someone's subjective experience determines reality or not, or if there's an objective, intentional design in creation. The questions have moved so further
0: upstream. Hmm. So, Eric, one of the things we so appreciate about having you with us is the clarity with which you speak to these issues as a theologian. Uh, And so what we want to start with is what what would you say are some of the principal elements that you would... Think, that you would think are crucial in formulating a theology of gender? Well, the first thing I would say
2: is I would want to be super positive about it based on the fact that an all wise, all good creator who is displaying his glory in creation made male and female. That male and female issues are not problems to be solved, but God intended designed realities to be celebrated and enjoyed and to image him. and so. I'm so concerned that we tend to just see it as a problem we almost wish the Bible didn't talk about instead of saying, no, our creator knows best who we are and how we're intended to live and eagerly go to the scriptures to find out what God says is true rather than letting our experiences or our cultural problems or the fact that sin has so messed up the realities of male and female, that it's just a negative thing that's a burden to us rather than something for God's glory, for our joy, and actually to display the gospel. I would want to start with not sort of a few passages that that delineate roles, but I would want to back it all the way up to Genesis 1 and make Mm -hmm. sure we start with God's wonderful design in creation and realize we don't get to the very goodness of creation until we get to the male and femaleness of it.
0: I figure after all, there's a good reason why he said in Genesis 1.31, that at the end of it, it was all very good. That's right.
2: And male and female is an essential part of that. There's this idea that human beings determine reality rather than the creator doing that. And so much of our lives are, as Christians, needing to conform to what God has created in spite of our fallen natures. Instead of trying to transform it to what we would prefer it would be based on our feelings, our inclinations, our past experiences, whatever they may be. And so, so much of our lives is, is saying, yes, Lord, to what he's designed. And even though it's been so marred by the fall, nevertheless, uh, living according to that and seeking to be faithful to what he's created.
0: Does it seem to you that we have sort of lost some of the impact of the fall? In, in this conversation because it seems to me when we put the primacy on our you know our feelings and our inclinations uh we sometimes lose the idea that those have been deeply affected by the general entrance of sin and you know i mean i i, I mean i think if i if i if i lived out my life according to my feelings uh that that would have been a train wreck a long time ago
2: yeah if i always followed my natural inclinations and desires. I'd be in prison right now for a very long time. <laughs> Even on my way over here, I would have done something that would have gotten me in prison and traffic. So absolutely, this, this sort of Disney movie theme of following your heart, depending on where your heart may be leading you on that day, could be a disaster.
0: Well, I, yeah, I'm not so sure I want to follow my heart that Jeremiah calls is, you know, desperately, desperately wicked. wicked.
2: Right, right. Now, the idea is to be transformed in our thinking so that our heart is changed in a Godward direction. And then we can start to live more instinctively or according to where our hearts are inclined. But we need to be very suspicious of where it's leading us from day to day because the Bible says we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And although we have transformed character and from the inside out have been changed as new creatures in Christ, there's still a process of aligning Mm -hmm. our our affections and our thinking to what God says is true. Eric,
1: you're not only a professor, but also a pastor, which I deeply respect because you're working with people just through life's issues and challenges and problems, et cetera. How would you minister to somebody? So to take some of this theology down to just a person wrestling with Mm. gender dysphoria, how does this theology inform the way you would approach somebody and just love and care for them?
2: Well, the first thing I would want to make sure we remember when it comes to any sexuality issues is mm-hmm. sin has affected all of us in every area of our lives. And mm-hmm. so in, in one sense, I don't want to put sexual sin or sexual uh, dysfunction or disorders in some separate category from every, any other sort of sin that I deal with. The Bible does say sexual sin is sin against the body. There is something deep right, about it right. and who we are. But at the same time, I don't want to put it in some completely different category that whether it's my pride or my critical spirit or my impatience that... I'm fighting that we're all in this together. No Mm. temptation has seized you that isn't common to man. Mm. And so I don't want to sort of relegate some sins to a especially bad category and and make it even more complicated than it already is. And so on one hand, I I want to help people grow in their relationship with the Lord and in their Christ-like development, no matter what challenge they're up against. Having said that, Our sexuality is deep in who we are and our culture is so hypersexualized. and increasingly people define themselves by their sexual desires, which is tragic that I would be defined by any desire I have, that we need to help people not feel imprisoned by what inclination desire they have, realizing we're all dysfunctional in every way and sinful in all areas of our lives, including our sexuality. I'm a a sexual sinner. I've got problems sexually. Everybody does. And so so I want to help folks who are confused, getting mixed messages from culture, being affirmed in whatever it is they may be feeling, to step back and say the power of the gospel and the power of the Spirit can lead you to Christ-like conformity and holiness, whatever the battle is you're up against.
1: I think that's great. And before before we jump in, what's so helpful about this is we've had Christopher Yuan on on our program before. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how some people will approach him and say, well, I don't have same-sex attraction, so I can't help this person. It's like, wait a minute, we all have common temptations, common issues. There might be something unique about this, but we can relate and minister to
2: them. So that first step, I love it's that. Huge. And I love his his book, Holy Sexuality. Mm-hmm. I think that point of pursuing holiness in our lives, whatever the battles we may be having are is so helpful. And and to make sanctification, whatever the challenges we're facing, our goal, I think simplifies things in a really clarifying way. Mm-hmm.
0: Eric, let's go back to the classroom here for a minute, uh, and, and out, I'll, I'll take us out of the church here for a minute and back into the classroom. What are, what are some of the main areas where you are seeing students raise the most questions about, about the biblical teaching on gender? Are there specific tension points that students feel?
2: I, I would say it boils down to this idea of conforming to a God-designed reality rather than affirming where I happen to be right now. There's this idea that to in some way live out of conformity to what's coming naturally in my life is somehow inauthentic and phony. There's this idea that authenticity means living out of your gut, living out of what's happening naturally right now. And so to say to your friend who has embraced a homosexual lifestyle or an idea. Uh, gender identity different than the one they biologically were born with, is somehow calling them to inauthenticity, to be fake or phony. And this idea of embracing who you are, who you've discovered yourself to be based on how your perceptions of yourself are today, to challenge that seems like a cardinal doctrine you just can't mess with. And so it seems so unkind and, and intolerant to challenge a friend to live according to God's design for them when it is in conflicting uh, feelings of, of how they're approaching it right now. So, so a, a genuine compassion for friends who've embraced a lifestyle or an identity counter to God's design seems mean. It, it seems unkind. And so we have what I call truthless compassion, hmm. that, that it's not compassion grounded in truth according to God's ways and word but compassion in affirming what your friend is feeling right now. And so, so it's it's really tough to stay under biblical authority when your friend seems to be at odds with it and you want to be a good friend. And so to me, it's that relational crisis so many of my students feel. Even if they're not personally dealing with something, they know really nice, kind, good people, friends, family members in their lives who are embracing an unbiblical approach to sexuality and it's really hard for them not to affirm it because they feel like they're they're mean when the fact is you're unloving from a christian perspective if you affirm anything not according to god's design it's it's unloving to do that so even
1: christian students i found have just imbibed this sense of authenticity in the way that you described it Are there any just practical, helpful illustrations or ways that you try to get students and even Christians to say, wait a minute, maybe this isn't a biblical or helpful or a good way of authenticity. Here's what it really means to be authentic, because it seems like that's at the root of it. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be free? What does it mean to be authentic? We could talk about biblical teaching until we're blue in the face, Mm -hmm. but if we don't rewire what the good life is... All that is going to be for naught. So are there ways with your students that you try to help them to understand, no, that's not the authentic life following what you feel. Here's what the authentic
2: life is, biblically speaking. Right. So there's this idea that that authenticity requires a living according to how I feel. When biblically, integrity, it means that you live according to what God says is right and true, regardless of how you feel. And that's not hypocrisy. Mm. That's actually integrity. And I I think what I try to help people realize is how unrealistic it is to think it's even possible to always live according to how you're feeling. Okay. So so let's just take something unrelated to this topic, uh, forgiveness. So if I know it's right to forgive someone and I offer them forgiveness, and then two minutes later I feel unforgiving, well, at that point I have a few options. I could say, well, I guess I'm a big phony or I guess I didn't mean it. Or I can say, oh, I guess there's a process in walking down the path of working toward aligning my feelings and even my thoughts to what God says is true. And so I recommit to that forgiveness that I authentically committed to. And then look at that, I made it 15 minutes without any feelings of unforgiveness, (laughs) right? And then before you know it's an hour, and then maybe I could go a whole day without feeling any unforgiveness. And before you know it, I've gone three months, six months, and eventually I've put that sin to death of unforgiveness. And, mm. and that, I wasn't being inauthentic in that process. I was actually just realizing, oh, it's a process to grow in conformity to the truth rather than just how I naturally instinctively feel. And so I think, I think we give people a really unrealistic view of what life is like growing as a Christian or, or in our character to be like Christ if, if we give the impression that it just has to happen. And that if there's a delay between my affections and my righteous commitments, that's not being a phony. That's staying committed to what is right and good in spite of how I feel. And I think God's really honored by that in a way, even more than when it's just flowing. Right. When the right thing is flowing from me. I think God loves when we submit to his word, even when it's not coming naturally.
0: I mean, it seems to me that's. That's sort of the thing where it happens regularly, where we we know what's right intellectually, but we've got to wait for our heart to catch up to that. Sometimes, if you've been hurt badly, you know it takes a while for That's that right. to happen. That's right. Uh, and it seems to me, you know, sort of the whole point of Christian ethics is to put guardrails around our desires. Yeah. Uh, and in, fa- in fact, I think most of what Christian ethics does is give you moral instruction. That enables you to transcend your desires, and that you make you make choices that are different. I mean, Paul in Romans seven was clearly conflicted between what he knew to be right and what he wanted to do. Amen. I mean, that was a, that was a big conflict for him, mm-hmm. uh, and he I think he recognized that a big part of becoming more like Christ is denying yourself, taking up your cross, submitting your desires to the Lordship of Christ, and then choosing to follow him on a day-by-day basis. I mean, it just strikes me that the whole being authentic really strikes at the heart of what the whole enterprise of Christian ethics is about. Right. And
2: discipleship is related to the word discipline and disciplines required because of that conflict that we experience every day. Now, I wouldn't want, anyone to think that desires are bad, I actually think even my sinful desires can be traced back to God-given image of God-based desires that Mm. I'm just seeking to have satisfied. That have been been disordered. That's right. Mm. And and so even, even sinful sexual desires and temptations and actions, I think, tend to get back to just a deep desire for intimacy that are just being you approached in shortcut ways or ways that seem more expedient or easier. But if you get down to the root, I'm created for intimacy with God and with other people. And so I wouldn't ever want anyone to think that desires are bad in and of themselves. It's just understanding what we're created for and then working that out in ways that God has said will only lead to fulfillment of those desires, which are according to him and his ways.
0: I so appreciate you're helping us see the deeper issue underneath this, Mm -hmm. because I think there really are some much deeper things that go to the heart of our discipleship in our in our equipping of students so but let me go back to specifically to sex and gender for a moment what's what distinction if if any do you make between biological sex and gender How, how if at all are those different
2: right boy the terminology can be so confusing because often people are using words and people are defining them differently than the person using so defining terms is really important and And typically people these days are using sex to define your biological born male or female identity. And gender tends to now be used to describe the cultural sort of trappings that tend to come with that. And so I think it can be helpful to realize how people are using those terms when we're talking to them. I don't ultimately find it helpful to make that kind of distinction because I think it can cause confusion as if... There is what you're born and then sort of what you decide then, irrelevant of how you're born. And Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, is so helpful here that more and more people are viewing the, the the body as almost this irrelevant thing instead of a tremendous gift from God that shows us who we are as male and female. And that shows up in the issue of abortion, it shows up in, in mm-hmm. transgenderism, it shows up in in issues of homosexuality, as if the body's irrelevant in the way it's designed. So I think that's really important, but, but I do want to be very aware of how people are using those terms when I interact with them. But I don't like to make a big distinction between those two, except in the fact that we need to realize they're wonderful God-intended distinctions in how He's made us. And like everything else, those get worked out and interpreted culturally, but that's true of everything. In life, everything is in a cultural context, and I need to be aware of what are unnecessary cultural stereotypical ways of thinking about these things relative to biblical teaching on it. Uh, but at the same time, I don't, I don't want to overdo those distinctions because I, th- I think it can actually lead to more confusion.
0: So, does the Bible even have a concept of gender? Does it have,
2: as a, does a cultural, it,
0: yeah, as a cultural construct.
2: Well, I think, I think. The Bible demands that we appreciate culture because it's revelation of God throughout time and cultural expression. Now people can use culture to explain away what the Bible says. Well, it's a different culture, so it doesn't really apply to us. So our job is to respect the the time and the place and the culture the Bible teaches things, but then at the same time to translate it into our culture. That doesn't transform it into something else. That, that's the challenge of biblical interpretation at its core, is to respect the historical nature of the revelation we find there. But at the same time, translate it into our day without turning it into something other than it was ever intended to be. So biblically speaking,
1: is biological sex an inherent part of what it means to be human? And where does scripture teach this?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think it is part of what it means to be human. And it teaches it right from the beginning all the way through with a clear understanding that there are men and there are women. And and that sin right from the beginning messed that up. And and even Satan's attack, I think, was to divide male and female and get us at each other mm-hmm. instead of for each other. And, and so right from the beginning and throughout the Bible, we see sin just causing serious devastation all the way through the Bible, often in, in primarily male and female relations and the way we, we aren't for each other. So, so I, I think right in the beginning, we see God creating male and female, as we said before, and we don't get to the very goodness until that happens. But, but I believe that God wants to image himself all through creation, but primarily in humanity, And in humanity, one of the primary ways he wants to image himself is making humanity equal in nature but distinct in male and female in a way that actually reflects the unity and distinction in himself. And he says male and female are echad in the same way God is one. Mm -hmm. And so the oneness in God, although distinct in persons, actually shows up not as an analogy of, of the Trinity but in a way that images God in a unity and diversity in humanity itself. And the oneness is meaningful because there's difference. The, the oneness is meaningless unless there's difference we start with mm-hmm. and then we have a be- beautiful unity in male and female and marriage in that. So so the the oneness in God within diversity in God is, is displayed in humanity in that way. So
1: biblically speaking, is it important how we express our sexuality? does that matter? And what biblical guidelines might there be for how we are to live out our maleness and or our
2: femaleness? Right. So within evangelicalism, this is where some difference of interpretation and opinion come in. But I believe that God makes us male and female. And what I wouldn't want to do is so fear culturally imposed stereotypes that would say, well, all men should be like John Wayne and all women should be like Marilyn Monroe. (laughs) I'm dating myself there. Um, um, To the point where I then wouldn't give any clarity about what this does mean. I I hear a lot of people who believe in biblical distinctions sort of throwing up their hands and saying, but I don't know what it looks like. Now, to be sure... From culture to culture and relationship to relationship, there are going to be judgment calls on what it looks like. But I think we've got to give a culture that's desperately in need of clarity on this issue, clarity on this issue, not by overdoing it and say all men should love NASCAR and hunting and all women should love knitting and crocheting. And so it's not personality. It's not hobbies. It's not the movies you like. Thank Mm -hmm. goodness, because Pride and Prejudice would be my preference over Fast and Furious any day. I'm going to throw that out there. But so it's it's (laughs) not our hobbies. uh, (laughs) Our movies are coming. (laughs) But but I do think it gets down to a relational dynamic between men and women that reflects the biblical pattern of the way I would put it to, to sort of summarize and try to give some clarity is the meaning of manliness if gentleman is going to mean anything anymore and lady is going to mean anything anymore and chivalry is going to mean anything anymore uh, when when paul says act like men to the corinthians mm. or or even god says to job gird up your loins like a man that's a mm-hmm. male specific term there it's, it's got to have some meaning. And you don't say, well, it's just in that culture, manliness meant something distinct. No, I th- still think it does. And so I the way I, I boil it down, and plenty of people disagree with me, is I think the biblical pattern is that men in relationship should feel a general relational dynamic of responsibility, provision, and protection. Now, that's going to look really different depending on the relationship, okay. depending on the context. But, you know, it's it's interesting with, with these shootings, say in theaters or in schools, you have these stories of these young men giving their lives sometimes yeah. to protect yeah. people. Now, I don't doubt women are completely courageous and strong and bold, but no one says, hey, why aren't more women stepping up and protecting these young men on the football team? But it, it's, it's these guys who are doing this and there's something so right about that. I mean... When a guy steps in front of his, his girlfriend in a movie theater to protect her, I think there's something in everyone that says is something right about that. And when it was women and children first in the Titanic to get in the lifeboats, I think deep down we know there's something fundamentally right about that re- that reflects relational dynamics that, that we can't help but affirm. And so even in the movie Titanic, as much as Hollywood wants to get away from these categories, they just can't because it's not grounded in history of what happens in those situations. But also, I mean, if, if she if in, in the Titanic, she's, you know, in the water and finally just slips away. Everybody'd say, what are you doing, dude? Get off the boat, get off the board, right? But mm. uh, so there's a relational dynamic that, that I think is wonderful in God design that will look very different depending on the circumstances and those things. But, you know, I had, I had a dear brother come to me not too long ago who's dealt with same-sex attraction his whole life. And, and he said, you know, so often I listen to Christians talk about male and female and he's fighting the good fight. He, he's, he's seeking sure. to live out his manhood. And he said, but when I listen to so many Christians talk, they talk about what this doesn't mean so much that I have no idea what I'm fighting for every day. So he said, don't, I don't even know what it means to be a man anymore and what I'm fighting for in that.
0: I suspect this may be the first time some of our listeners have actually heard somebody put shoe leather on that idea and have it make sense to them. Because I, I, that, that I think is really helpful, and I think we've all, we've all had you know we've all known people who have tried to make this specific but have gone you know way out there beyond what what I think the Bible would allow us to do, mm-hmm. uh, and I think to say that you know how it's how that how those three things are going to work out may look completely different right. in different cultures. I think, gives, I think gives a lot of room for culture to have the kind of impact that I think it was intended to have in a, in a good sense.
2: Right. And it might not even find a actual expression. So if I'm on a bus and there are no seats left on the bus and I, I have one of the seats and a young lady gets on who's 23, she's an Olympic swimmer, f- more fit than I have ever been. And my f- broken down 57 year old body physically needs that seat more than she does.
0: She's not getting it. No, no, that's
2: the point. She is getting that seat, right? I'm going to get up and give her my seed, And it's not because physically she needs it more. I actually need it more. But there's something in me that isn't going to sit there as she stands up. Now, she may be insulted as if she need, I think she needs it more than I do. But that's really not the point. I, I, I want to live out. A manhood in a way where I actually want my sons to think differently about the way they relate to their sisters than the way they relate to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I have a friend whose son came home one day and he he hit a kid at school, and and he punished his son, and then his other son came home and hit a kid at school, and he found that it was a girl. <laughs> He, the kid was saying, "Well, she's bigger than I am, Dad." And he he said, "I don't care." And he said, "The whole world stopped in my home." And wow. he said, "And I want my boys to know that it's bad to hit a kid, it's a boy at school. But if you hit a girl at school, the whole world's coming to a stop. <laughs> and if you hit a boy defending a girl, you'll get a trip to Dairy Queen. And and so <laughs> because there there's a difference, and he wants them to know that. And I think so many guys are really confused about what it means to be a man and, mm. and women are too. I mean, women are more and more taught that I, I've read one author that says if a woman decides to stay home and raise her children, she's immoral. That it, it swung so far from women feeling like they have to do that to now if they do it, it they're somehow betraying their sex. So what would you say
1: to a dad who they decide that the mom's making more money and the dad's like, I'm going to stay at home and raise the kids? What would be your response yeah, to that?
2: I, again, I, I think these are judgment calls we make. Where, and there have been times in our marriage where, where Don has been the mate, brand winner when I've been a full-time student. And I don't think there's anything wrong. I have a friend who he mowed lawns for a living and his wife was a, a lawyer and and he said well you think i'm going to keep mowing lawns and and so 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 she ended up being the okay. maid Brennwitter, but the point but he never lost his sense of a manly responsibility that the family was being taken care of and that 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 fell to him ultimately in a way and that's why i say there's a relational dynamic that has differing degrees of expression depending on the context and the relationship. But but my friend, whose wife was the main breadwinner, he never lost the sense that this is on me. And and by the same token, one of the most manly men I've ever known was named Mark Rittering. And and Mark was a, a police officer up in the Central Valley, just an incredible man. And he got ALS. And wow. And for the last several years of his life, was an, unable to do anything for himself physically, never mind care for his family the way he had before that. And so his wife did everything, but Mark never lost that instinct he had, and that that desire. And, and the police officers in his area stepped in and took over husbandly and fatherly responsibilities for him in in that sort of way that. But so, so there are different relationships and dynamics like Mark, where he's physically incapable of even sense. protecting his family from a burglar, but he's going to make sure they're taken care of. So it sounds like
1: the, the, the dance you're trying to keep in is a sense of keeping the distinction between male and female, but not importing cultural stereotypes. When I speak to audiences, I'll say regular, give me an example of the manly man. First two, always, David and Samson. Hmm. I think once somebody has said Jesus <laughs> one time, yeah, on. mm. which tells me this John Wayne kind of tough men don't cry has influenced us in some ways. But then on the flip side, there's this sense of like, you know, completely obliterating that distinction. Right. We have to keep both those in tension. And sometimes there's a little variance there. That's just where they gets tricky, doesn't it? There's a judgment call, right. biblical scripture, and maybe grace for others who nuance it a little differently. Is that kind of the medium ground we should try to find ourselves in?
2: Well, nothing's more surprised me more since I became a leader in different ways in the church uh, than how many judgment calls about getting this stuff right God leaves up to us. It mm-hmm. really I have a a relative who says, oh, you Christians, you got this little Bible. You never have to think for yourselves or answer any questions. Anytime you get a question, you just go to the Bible and you get the answer. And I just say, (laughs) you have no idea how much we wish God were a little more explicit about things. But what I would want to make sure we realize is this challenge of working this out in daily reality without throwing up our hands and saying, well, there's a difference, but I don't know what it is. Sure. Is true in so many areas of our life. Let's take generosity. Right. Bible says to be generous with a cheerful heart. And I want to go, ah, could I get a percentage on that? (laughs) Right. Or or, at what point am I being a good steward? So is my thirty five dollar watch good stewardship? Right. The Bible doesn't tell me. And so we need to work this out together or or uh, opposing racism in our culture. What's the wisest way to do that? What's the best way to do that? What's the proportional emphasis of that? These are judgment. It's not just male and female that requires daily judgment calls. It's, it's almost every area of our life getting it right in our context to do that. And, and I wouldn't want to overcomplicate it. I, yeah, so what does it mean for me to feel responsible for the spiritual welfare of my family? Well, it means that family devotions in something that Donna may come to me and say, you know, it's been a while since we've read the Bible with the kids. And I'm not going to say, well, it's your. I'm going to say, yeah, busted. Let's 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 gather around in the living room tonight. And and Don always says, I want to be a joy for Eric to lead. And man, is she. And 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 so even in that dynamic, there's a healthy responsibility i feel that can feel like a burden at times but at that i don't want to shirk because that's an instinct i think men especially have we're happy to let the responsibility go elsewhere and man women are great at at doing what needs to be done and and in many ways men are falling so far behind socially and i think a lot of it is because trying to avoid toxic masculinity means avoiding masculinity that's right and that i that's think so makes that's it good. worse Mm. I, I don't think the solution to toxic masculinity is less masculinity. I think it's more biblical masculinity that's like Jesus, just, just what you said. That, I mean, if, if a man were loving his wife like Jesus in strength and love and kindness and compassion and patience and truth, well, who, who would fight against that?
0: Yeah, I think it's not an accident that when Paul talks about you know, male-female relationships and marriage... It's the husband who gets the much tougher command right. to love his wife as Christ loved the That's church.
2: That's right. Anybody who reads, if any man who reads Ephesians 5 and says, yeah, this means I get my way, has no idea what he just read. When, when it's wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, he should say, what? If you want to start playing the fairness game, <laughs> get off the bus now, right? Because what I know how he loved his church. He died for her. When she hated him, never mind when she earned it or something. So, so that call to Christ-like, self-sacrificial, loving leadership has to be, be what we are defining leadership by and not cultural. It, it, it doesn't mean you get to be a bully and get your way.
0: Yeah, I don't see anywhere in that passage where, where that gives the guy a claim on his wife, not at all, not at all. It's it's the it's the wife who's got a claim on the husband. <laughs> That's right. To love to love That's her right. appropriately, mm-hmm. I have to tell you the the part about protection too, mm-hmm. I think resonates with me as a dad mm-hmm. because one of the incidents that I am most proud of my my kids about was when my middle son came outside of a club where his band was playing, and they were packing up their stuff in the parking lot, and, and about twenty feet away. Was a guy who was wailing away on his girlfriend. Oh my goodness! Beating her physically, and to watch, to hear him tell about it, he just he sort of instinctively stepped into the middle of that girl. Girl he never met, never knew, never would see wow. again. Stepped in the middle of that, and broke it up. Uh, ended up being costly for him because the guy got a, a shot on him mm-hmm. that knocked a tooth out before. Best tooth it, he ever lost. It was. <laughs> it was. Uh, before he ended up. You know, di- basically disabling the guy and protecting her. But I remember him, t- and, and he w- he was actually he was really quite, I think, appropriately proud of himself for that. Even though, you know, so you could you could look at that and say, you know, you really you were an idiot to step into the <laughs> middle of that. Uh, yeah,
2: right. Practically speaking. Yeah. Tell yeah. Me,
0: he, I mean, it, yeah. it really didn't make a lot of sense. But it was just it was something he, he didn't think about it. Uh, he just instinctively stepped in and protected her.
2: And I was very proud of it. It is. That. I have two teenage boys, and they both regularly say to me, Dad, I really want to get in a fight protecting somebody. <laughs> They'll, like, have dreams about <laughs> it. We're like, Dad, I had a dream last night that there was this girl in trouble at school, and I just beat this guy up who was – and I just there's something I love about that. And again, it doesn't mean yeah, that women don't have protective instincts. Of and, course. And there may be a woman who's actually a judo expert who's better at defending herself than I would be defending her. But the point is, do I have that instinct?
0: Well, we don't. We don't call women with young children mama bears for, for <laughs> That's nothing. That's exactly right. That's um, exactly right. Because that you know that protective instinct is, is very, very strong. Absolutely. But I think expressed in a in a somewhat different right. way.
2: Right. 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 And so, again, people immediately say, well, I think when I say I think men should have a relational dynamic and an instinct to provide, protect and initiate, people immediately will say, oh, so does that mean women don't provide protect and initiate? Not at all. That's why I say it's a relational dynamic and a degree of relational dynamic that that is expressed. And so. So again, this is in no way devaluing women or diminishing the way they incredibly provide, protect, and initiate. But I do think men are created uh, to to express this to a greater degree.
0: Yeah, and there's no, and that doesn't suggest that, you know, outside of the the home, mm-hmm. that it's not a you know wide open playing field for women to, to exercise leadership in whatever capacity they're capable of carrying.
2: Exactly, and. But even then, so my, one of my main bosses here at Biola is a woman and, and I submit to what she tells me to do. I have no problem with that. But even in our relationship, I don't want to say it's no different than a relationship I would have with a, with a man. There should be still something to carry over. What I wouldn't want to do is say, yes, the specific roles are delineated in the home and the family biblically, but everywhere else is no different because that's weird. It, it, then it makes it seem like a single person isn't a man or a woman until they get married right. Right. or or until you're in an elder role or submitting to an elder, your manhood or your womanhood isn't kicking into gear. And your, the example of your son is a good example of that. So he didn't say, "Well, I'm not going to get involved because this isn't a church or home context." Right? There was there was something about his manhood and the womanhood. Yeah, he didn't thing. even have to think about exactly. it. Exactly. And so I mean, it, Kevin Young calls it narrow complementarianism or, or broad complementarianism, and these terms can be loaded. But, but if you do think there are distinctions, I, I wouldn't want to reduce it to, well, it's just the family and the church, as if your manhood and womanhood is in neutral until you're in those contexts. That'd be very strange if God made all of humanity one or the other, but it was only operative. In those two contexts. Now, the specificity and the clarity of the roles is more laid out clearly, obviously, in those two areas. Yeah, I, just, but, I, just,
0: I wouldn't want to be misunderstood right. as right. being somehow discouraging to women not to be all that they could be in the, in the workplace or in other arenas.
2: Right. At the same time, I wouldn't want them to feel like they need to be a really great mom and wife and CEO to really be a successful woman.
0: right? right. Well, I hope, hopefully we're, we're over that notion that yeah. you can actually have it all this side of eternity. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. Good. Tell me how that works out. Right, right.
1: A couple theological questions for you related to transgender, but first just one a theological question. I'm curious what you would say is you said our biological sex is essential to who we are. That's what it means to be human. So when we die and we go to heaven do we continue our maleness and femaleness into eternity? If it's essentially part of who we are, it would seem like either we would change in our essential nature or it would
2: continue. I I think it continues because I do think it's essential to who we are. Because on one hand, we need to affirm our common humanity that we all equally share and have dignity from it. But in the same way, Not only will male and female endure, I think the unique personalities every one of us has been given by God will continue as well. I think you're going to be as recognizable, if not more so, because your image of godness will be more on display than ever, Sean, when when I see you in heaven. I I don't think I'm going to say, and you are, (laughs) because I think even our particular unique personalities will carry over, Mm. and with that, our male and femaleness. That makes sense. Let, let's shift to
1: some of the comments we hear today. Like you'll hear people say things like, "I'm a man trapped in a woman's body." Now, I never want to downplay that if somebody really feels like they that that rings true to them, that that is somebody's experience. But is it biblically and hence metaphysically possible? to be a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body? Why or why not?
2: Yeah, let me preface my answer by saying this. I think one of the areas we miss doing this issue well is on one hand realizing there's a cultural revolution that's happened in the area of sexuality that I think is dishonoring to God, it's destructive to human flourishing, and it actually inhibits gospel advance because the gospel... Is in part advanced in the way male and female relate in marriage, and more broadly in the church. I, I think our holy lives as men and women are the backdrop that the gospel advances. I did a lot of passages of Scripture bear that out. But I think it's important to distinguish between a cultural movement that we should call out and and combat, and individuals who are caught up in this cultural movement. Amen. And there should be tremendous compassion and and care. So I appreciate why people say, especially conservatives, facts don't care about your feelings. What I say is, well, that's true, but I do. Yeah. And hmm. God does. Yeah. Hmm. So I appreciate what they're saying, right? Facts aren't transformed by your feelings, like we were saying in the beginning of, yeah. the, of, of the time, but but human beings relating to each other and ministering to her to each other have to be be really concerned about how people are feeling and what their experiences have been and the challenges they're going through. I don't want you to be judgmental of me when you become aware of different sins in my life. I want you to say, well, you know, how'd you get here? And and I want you to be mm-hmm. be sympathetic to what I've gone through. So distinguishing between a cultural movement we should oppose and individuals who are caught up in that cultural movement, I think is really important. So there's a a prophetic cultural concern we need to have as as Christians, but then there's also personal pastoral concern that will have a very different complexion to it and way of dealing with it. Then maybe what we would say in a, in a paper refuting ideas related to this idea. So I mean, I've, I've had a lot of experience dealing with dear people who are going through this battle in all levels of the spectrum, from I'm embracing this fully to I'm going to fight it according to biblical authority, and, and everywhere in between, both with gender dysphoria and same-sex attraction. and and. And to deal with individuals where they are and ask great questions and find out where they are and enter into the struggle with them as a fellow struggler is incredibly important on a a relational pastoral level. And then address issues like that with an appropriate amount of, you know that's incoherent. You know, for all of human history, that's not how people have thought. Carl Truman's book, Mm. The Rise of the Modern Self, is so helpful in this. Great book. Where he says he writes the whole book trying to help people realize how incoherent that statement is. Mm. And relatively new it is. I mean, he said his grandparents would hear something like that and just laugh. But we've gotten to the point where we so affirm our subjective experience that that makes sense. Not even to just, you know, liberal elite academics, but... To the average guy in the street, well, cool, all right. So, and it, we sort of go along with something that that isn't coherent with reality or reason.
0: So, take it a step further, pastorally. How how would you help parents mm. who have kids who are experiencing gender dysphoria?
2: I would take the long view of raising children, and I tell myself all this time that that all the time as a dad that. You know, there are days if I judge my child's future on what just went down today, we're all in trouble, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't want that verdict as a parent coming on those days. I'm in
2: the most trouble very often how I perform. I remember my daughter said to me one time, Daddy, you have no idea what it's like to be an 11-year-old girl. And I said, you're exactly right, Caroline. And you have no idea what it's like to be the father of an 11-year-old girl. So let's just learn together <laughs> Get here, right? Okay. And so, so I would say, do your best to enter into that situation with a long view, but with truth and love. And to realize that to sympathize to the point where you're not truthful is damaging to your child. And to speak truth without a sympathetic tenderness is damaging to your child as well. And, so, and, and I always try to help my kids realize that I still battle sin every day of my life. I never want to appear to them like I've arrived or I've gotten this figured out. And I'll say to them, look, we're in this together. And, And right now in your life, I'm probably your best friend to help you fight this battle. Because God's given me to you, with all my faults and sin, I'm your parent, and so like, I'm, like it or not, <laughs> that's right. I'm in this with you, and sometimes it means clearing the decks when when there's a, a major challenge, and saying, "All right, I just can't do this area of my life anymore because this has become a priority for me." And something like a child going through a crisis in their sexuality in some way probably deserves taking some things off your plate so you can bear down and. And just even spend more recreational time so it's not just this that you're dealing with in their life. Good friend of mine, his uh,
1: daughter was wrestling with questions on this. And he said he had an insight when he said, I was I didn't have to first convince my daughter of an argument or a position. Mm. I needed to convince her of my love. Yeah. I thought, what a beautiful place just to start with a long-term view. Last thoughts. Are there any books of the Bible? Any resources? If somebody says... Okay, I see some of the confusions coming from the culture, coming from the church. I want to develop a more robust theology of just gender, and obviously, there's the debate between egalitarianism and mm-hmm. complementarianism. Mm-hmm. What would be a good next step for somebody to just solidify their biblical understanding on this issue further?
2: Yeah, so so much that'll be determined by the particular issues. Uh, Kevin DeYoung has just come out with a concise, good book on. And male and female that I think is really helpful. Uh, recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood has been tremendously helpful for me To an, from an exegetical standpoint, dealing with key passages of scripture that did directly relate to this. Sam Andreades has a book called Engendered that I found super helpful as well. Sam actually studied people who had lived in homosexual lifestyles who now were in really healthy heterosexual marriages. Interesting. And he found that in his research, the key issue was clear roles as male and female in those heterosexual marriages that were healthy now and not leaving it super ambiguous like people are inclined to do. And I think Sam's book does a great job of of dealing with that sort of issues. Uh, Christopher Yuan's book, Holy Sexuality, has been really helpful. Uh, so th- those are some I'd recommend. There are a lot of great resources out there.
1: That's great. Dr. Eric Tonis, thanks for taking the time and letting us just kind of probe your mind on some sensitive, difficult topics today that oftentimes people don't want to talk about. But the scripture has a lot to say about this. It's not black and white in every circumstance, like you said, but it gives us guidelines. And we can work these out with grace and truth with others. So thanks for You're joining welcome. us on the Think Biblically podcast. This has been an episode of the podcast Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and fully online, including the Institute for Spiritual Formation. Visit biola.edu Talbot to learn more. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please consider giving us a rating on your podcast app. Every review helps. And please consider sharing it with a friend. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.